0: amen you may be seated please turn with me in your bibles if you would to Matthew chapter 27 we have an important an important scripture to look at this morning and it means it means quite a bit preaching through the atonement through the crucifixion you know i could probably preach some aspect of this in, you know, all four of the Gospels. It's interesting that throughout the whole Bible, tons of stories are told. And there, there are a lot of pages devoted to a lot of different historical events and things that have happened. But when you go back and you look at them, you're talking about a chapter here, a paragraph there, usually just in one book of the Bible. But to have three, four chapters amongst three, four different, four, I should say four, four different Gospel writers All focusing on this one event, it's very clear that there's a lot that is happening here that the Father in heaven wants us to see. This morning, I want to focus in on one particular verse. In Matthew chapter 27, I want you to look with me. We'll start in verse 33, but it's actually verse 34 that is important. In verse 33, it says, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the school, they offered him wine to drink. Notice that. They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. Matthew uses the word gall. Mark uses the word myrrh. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He spit it out. They lifted it up to him on a sponge, perhaps, or perhaps they gave it to him prior to nailing him on the cross. And he did take a sip. As soon as he recognized it for what it was, he spit it out. I want you to jump on down to the end of the passage. Verse 47. In verse 46, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Verse 48. One of them ran at once and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. And the scriptures record here, as well as in Mark, that they did actually take a drink of this wine. The first drink of wine he rejected, but the second drink of wine he received. We'll be considering that this morning. If you would, please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Son and for the atonement that he made for all of us on the cross. Father, we thank you that we are declared righteous not because we are righteous but because of the righteousness which Christ freely bestows upon us. Taking away our sins and granting to us pardon and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for this covering that you have provided. Father, if there are any here today who are still laboring under the weight of their sin, who are still striving to make amends, still searching for some way to square the account with you, still trying in their own effort to make themselves righteous before you, we pray, God, that you would open their eyes to see exactly what is transpiring here at Golgotha. We pray, Lord, that you'd open their eyes to see that there is no way to make right with you, that you have to make it right with yourself and that you do that through your son. Father, we pray that if there are any here today who do not understand this, we pray you'd open their minds to understand it. We pray, God, you'd give them faith to receive it. We ask, Lord, that they would trust in Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In retrospect, the statement should have been totally expected by me, but it wasn't. Instead, the statement came as a complete shock. As in grade 12... It was my, one of my dear friends at the time, who was not a Christian, a fellow by the name of Eric Eccles, and we were sitting there in, just before the start of first period, and he was flipping through the newspaper, the Austin American Statesman, and he turned to me, and the statement he made was, quote, it looks like God did justice for Madeline Murray O'Hare, and I was blown away by that statement. It looks like God did justice for Madeline Murray O'Hare, and this from the mouth of an individual who didn't believe in God, didn't believe in religion at all. Some of you may not recall who Madeline Murray O'Hare was. She is the atheist, the founder of the American Atheists Institution. She's the one that went before the United States Supreme Court in 1963 in order to press her lawsuit against the public education system of Texas and subsequently all public education systems across the United States, declaring that prayer should be removed from school, that there should be no mention of God, that the Bible should not be a part of reading in English lit classes that there should be a firmer separation between church and state, that there should be no mention of God or religion or any of this sort of stuff in school. She filed a lawsuit, she said, on behalf of her son, Bill O'Hare, her oldest son, who was 16 at the time. There's a classic photo of her taken on the steps of the Supreme Court with her two children in tow, and she's dressed at the time, according to the fashions of the day, with a demure, wide-brimmed hat and very, very ladylike gloves, white gloves that went up to her elbow. But if you really knew Madeline Murray O'Hare, you'd know that she was not a lady. Many of her, what you might call clear, dear, close friends, would often comment on how mean she could be. One individual in, in particular, Jonathan Cleary, who was an associate of hers who worked at the American Atheist Institute said that she would go, quote, she would go through people like you or I might go through popcorn. She could rip a person up one side and down the other and not feel the slightest bit of remorse and not really care what that person thought of them. Others would later on in life testify that she was a thief and a crook. She often swindled partner organizations, institutions, which she herself had set up from the money that they collected in order to enrich her own pockets. She ran with a rough crowd. She would routinely hire convicts and criminals to work at her American atheist organization for a couple of reasons. One, she could pay them less because they would struggle to find meaningful work being a a convict, being an ex-con. Two, she admired their willingness to crime. She made the statement at one point in time, these are individuals who have embraced atheism to the fullest, survival of the fittest. They came, they saw, they tried to conquer. Unfortunately, they got caught, but they're my kind of people. Well, it was no surprise when, on August 28th of 1995, she turned up missing. Many of her associates said, you know, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Somebody was bound to grab this woman and, and do something horrible to her, and it has finally happened. The strangest thing about it was that it was largely unnoticed by the world around her. People began to comment Madeline Murray O'Hare, her son John, and her granddaughter Robin have gone missing. To which the rest of the world said, so what? Who cares? She was mean. She was nasty. She was vile. Nobody liked her. We're better off because she is gone. Don't go looking for a curse to bring back. Be glad that the Lord has taken it away. Nonetheless, the society American atheists needed to function. And so when the CEO goes missing, well, in order to continue business, you've got to do something about it. The board met. The board convened. And they appointed new directors and new leadership. Meanwhile, the whisperings continued. What happened to Madeleine Murray O'Hare? Where did she go? What became of her? What was her fate? People speculated. All kinds of theories were floated around. I can recall clearly sitting in church one Sunday in the mid-90s, and my pastor stood up and said, we need to stop talking about Madeleine Murray O'Hare because this much is true. God judged her, and he knows right where he put her. And that's all that we really need to think about with regards to that situation. Nonetheless, speculation continued. Late in 1995, under the leadership of new, new management and at American atheists, as they filed tax returns with the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, it became apparent that a million dollars had gone missing from the society. A crime was committed. Not the crime that Madeline Murray O'Hare went missing, mind you. Nobody really cared too much about that. But a million dollars has gone missing from a nonprofit society. That's something worthy of time and attention. And so the IRS investigated. Unfortunately, a few other uh, federal agencies began to investigate. At the end of the day, the conclusion was simply this. Madeline Murray O'Hare fled with a million dollars. She fled with her son, John, and her granddaughter, Robin. And beyond that, nobody else was really interested. Her first son, the one that stood with her on the courts, the steps of the Supreme Court in 1963, Bill O'Hare, He was the one to file a missing person report. Bill O'Hare had become a Christian in 1980, and on Mother's Day 1980, he had come out and he had renounced the atheism that he'd been raised with, and he had shared with the world that he was an evangelical Christian, that he worshiped God. Do you know what Madeline Murray O'Hare said in response to this news from her firstborn son? She said, quote, I wish now that I had just aborted him. It's horrible, isn't it? She goes on, I regret that I ever brought him into this world. As it is, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I suppose. As far as Bill is concerned, I totally and utterly repudiate him. Completely, for now and all time, he is beyond human Forgiveness, because Bill had tr- had decided to trust in a Jesus whom she was at war with. He filed the missing repers- the missing persons report a year after she had gone missing. The media clamored around the steps of the police department there downtown, uh, next door to Austin City Hall, and the chief of police. And I remember seeing this on the news as a teenager in 1995. Came forward and said, "Quote." There's no body, there's no crime scene, and there's nobody who cares. Direct quote. Why would we go on and spend valuable police resources and assets chasing after somebody that nobody cares about? And so the legend of Madeline Murray O'Hare continued to grow. What happened to this woman? What became of her and her son, John, and her granddaughter, Robin, the daughter of Bill, who became a Christian? It was one of those things that was gossiped about around the water cooler and became the talk of inner office uh, break rooms and chat rooms. But at the end of the day, nobody really knew. Nobody really knew. And every year on the anniversary of August 28th, it was one of those things that the tabloids, Texas Monthly, Austin American Statesman, San Antonio Express, the Tribune, Dallas Morning News, the newspapers would run it because she was a bit of a famous person in Texas. She was the one, after all, who single-handedly did away with religion in the public square, particularly in the public education system. And that made her noteworthy amongst Texas, Texan Baptists, no doubt. And so they would run news reports. And then, about three years after she went missing, there was a reporter who had dug up some of the details regarding her family, who had published a few reports, an individual by the name of John McCormick, who received a phone call anonymously at his office there in the San Antonio Express News Department, there in San Antonio, south of Austin. And this anonymous caller said something that just shocked John McCormick. Remember, he didn't really care about Madeline Murray O'Hare either, but he had published a series of reports just detailing the theft of a million dollars. This anonymous caller made the statement, you want to know what, what happened to Madeline Murray O'Hare? I'll tell you. Look into the whereabouts of David Fry. I'm sorry, Danny Fry. Look at what happened to Danny Fry. The caller went on to say Danny Fry traveled from Florida where he hooked up with another individual by the name of David Waters and Gary Carr, and the three of them together murdered Madeline Murray O'Hare and her son and her granddaughter and made off with a million dollars. It was totally wild and unsubstantiated reporting. It was an anonymous tip. The tipster wouldn't give name and could give no corroborating evidence, so John McCormick dismissed it out of hand. Later that month he was on a trip to Dallas for a journalists convention and in his hotel room that evening he flipped on the evening news and there was a detective on the evening news by the name of Robert Bjorklund who said it is the 3 year anniversary of a missing body that has of a missing person a dead person a body that has washed up on the banks of the Trinity River Many of you have probably forgotten, but he washed up on the banks of the Trinity River in downtown Dallas, decapitated, missing his head, missing his hands, and missing his feet, just a torso. We would still like to see justice done for this man. If you have any knowledge pertaining to this, this dead person, please come forward. John McCormick, the reporter for the San Antonio Express, was sitting there on his bed watching this, getting, his, getting himself together, getting ready for dinner. And the moment he saw that news report, he said to himself, that's Danny Fry from Florida. He even recounts, he said, the moment that I made this realization, the chills went up and down the body. There was not a single shred of evidence to prove this theory. I don't even know why it jumped into my head, but at the moment that I had the thought, I was utterly convinced it was true. And so he called the detective of the Dallas Police Department that was investigating the case, Robert Jorklin, he said, I think it's Danny Fry." to which Jorklin said, how do you know this? The truthful answer was given. About a month ago, I received an anonymous phone call to look into the death of Danny, Danny Fry in connection to the murder of Madeline Murray O'Hare. You see, in 1995, running DNA is an expensive proposition, and you have to have more than just some wild, crazy theory. And there were lots of wild, crazy theories circulating at the time about the disappearance of Madeline Murray O'Hare. Yet, unbelievably, Detective Jorklin said, all right, I'll run the DNA test, because after all, what else have we got to go on? Might as well take an anonymous tip. It's better than nothing. And shockingly enough, guess what happened? The body that washed up on the banks of the Trinity River in Dallas was, in fact, the body of Danny Fry. Now they had a dead body that somebody actually cared to investigate. So they began to research his cell phone records and his travel records. It was found that Danny Fry, about a month before the disappearance of Madeline Murray O'Hare, who had never used his cell phone, in the month leading up to, in the the weeks following the disappearance of Madeline Murray O'Hare, had made a shocking number of phone calls on his cell phone. Calls that could be traced to one individual by the name of David Waters. David Waters, who was a former employee of American Atheists, the organization that Madeleine Murray O'Hare founded. Well, this put them onto the case of David Waters. Lots of phone calls made to that cell phone. They began to investigate him. Do you know anything about Danny Fry? Well, we knew each other on a stint that we did in prison a couple of years ago, but nope, don't know anything about him, haven't seen him since. Which investigators knew wasn't true because they'd been talking. One thing led to another, and eventually David Waters was arrested on a probation violation in which he had had a weapon in his car, which was against the rules of his probation. This led to a search warrant in which they tore apart his apartment, and they found a gold coin tracing back to a jewelry shop in San Antonio. They went back to the jewelry shop They began to ask questions about this particular gold coin, which had a serial number on it. Records were pulled. Inquiries were made. And lo and behold, we now know what happened to Madeline Murray O'Hare, the woman that nobody cared about. On the morning of August the 28th, David Waters, together with Danny Fry and another ex-con by the name of Gary Carr, abducted her from her home, together with her son and granddaughter, Held them hostage at a hotel in San Antonio, about an hour's drive south of Austin. John, believing that they would hurt his mother if he did not comply, was coerced into making a withdrawal from the bank account of American atheists to the tune of $1 million, which he then took by form of cashier's check to a jeweler's store in San Antonio, where he converted that $1 million into gold coins, untraceable. Except this is 1995 and they stamped serial numbers on everything. So they weren't as untraceable as they thought. They took this money and they stored it in a storage locker. And then they took Malin Marie O'Hare, her son John, and her granddaughter Robin to that same storage locker where they tortured her brutally murdered her and her son and her granddaughter. Dismembered the body, chopped him up into pieces, took him out to a farm in West Texas where they disposed of the body. A few days later, debating how they would cut the money, a decision was made that three ways was good, but two ways would be better. And so they murdered Danny Fry. dismembered his body and disposed of him in the Trinity River in Dallas. Whatever happened to these men? David Waters was convicted of first-degree murder. In exchange for turning states' evidence, he was given life in prison. Gary Carr was sentenced to death. He was given the death penalty, and the state of Texas executed him in 2009. Danny Fry, as you're already aware, he was murdered by his accomplices. But what's interesting is David Waters... In prison died of cancer. He reported to the infirmary one day and he was struggling with colon cancer, and it was already too late. By the time it was diagnosed, it had spread into his bones and into his lymphatic system. And he died an excruciating, painful death. The ME, the doctor that was treating him, said, "Why didn't you report this?" He said, five years ago, back in 1995. When we took the million dollars off of Madeline Murray O'Hare, we put it in a storage locker. We went back to that storage locker to get that money, and it was, it was missing. I thought I had committed the perfect crime, but somebody had taken that million dollars, and I didn't know who, and so I was always looking over my shoulder, wondering when justice would catch up with me. As a result, this led to stomach ulcer. And so the pain I was feeling in my abdomen, even now today... I thought was just the stress of that stomach ulcer. I didn't know I was sick. David Waters died in prison from a cancer which doctors said was easily treatable. The M.E. who closed the case on him said he died of his own guilty conscience. Now you're all sitting here wondering whatever happened to that million dollars? Investigators finally figured it out. They had robbed Malin Murray O'Hare of a million dollars in gold coins. They'd stuck it in a Storage locker and a bunch of high school teenagers driving down the street, having a good time one night on a Friday night, on a dare, on a lark. Let's pull in to that storage locker facility. I have a master key here. Let's see if it fits any of those locks. By their own admission, they pulled up to only one locker. And lo and behold, the master key fit that locker. They threw open the door and there was a chest sitting in the middle with nothing but a million dollars in gold coins. It was the craziest, wildest spending spree you'd ever seen in the history of teenage adolescence. You say, Pastor, that's an interesting story. Why do you tell us all this? Stop and think with me for a moment. Madeline Murray O'Hare was a vile woman. I just told this story about her comment wishing she had aborted her own son. And you all gasped because you know that's very wicked. When she went missing, reporters were asking questions, but not too many questions. And at the end of the day, even the chief of police said, We don't care. We're happy she's gone. Madeline Murray O'Hare was an unloved, unwanted person that nobody cared about, and quite frankly, when she went missing, the world rejoiced, glad to see her gone. In terms of justice, nobody cares to do justice for Madeline Murray O'Hare. Nobody cares to see her killers brought to trial. Nobody, that is, except for one person, and only one person. Do you remember that anonymous phone call that was made? to the reporter, John McCormick, at the San Antonio Express News. They have investigated all of the extenuating people who have been associated with this whole thing from start to finish. Danny Fry didn't have any friends, he didn't have any relatives, he was a loner, he kept to himself, and when he went missing from Florida, nobody noticed. So the question is, who made that phone call? Who tipped off John McCormick? Who said to him, look into David Fry"? And then when John McCormick goes to this journalist convention in Dallas, why is he there at the exact time that they're doing a three-year anniversary on this investigation of this meaningless body that's washed up in the Trinity River? What causes the chills to run up and down his back and leads him to the totally unfounded conclusion that the body in the river is, in fact, Danny Fry, an accomplice of David Waters who murdered Madeline Murray O'Hare? What leads a detective, a perfectly reasonable detective, on a limited budget, Bob Jorklin, to run a DNA test on this body that is totally unfounded that it should be Danny Fry. To this day, if you ask John McCormick, who has since given his life to Christ in the wake of this event, he will tell you, and I quote, it was an angel of God who called me that day. Nobody wants Madeline Murray O'Hare found. Nobody wants justice for Madeline Murray O'Hare except for God. Stop and think with me for a moment. We worship a God who is going to do justice for everybody, even people that you and I think are utterly unlovely and unlovable. And we are rather, to be perfectly frank, we are rather glad that they are gone. But at the end of the day, the person who did justice for Madeline Murray O'Hare was the one whom she blasphemed on a regular basis, took his name in vain on a regular basis, and committed her whole life's work to removing him as much as possible from the public arena. The one who set herself against God in heaven most high. The one who declared herself his sworn enemy when she comes to a horrific fate that no one cares about what happened to her. One person who will do justice for her is Jesus Christ. Church, we worship a God who will see justice done no matter who has been the victim. Now, you're sitting here today, and you're saying, okay, you've got my attention, pastor. What does any of this have to do with the cup of wine that Jesus didn't drink? You need to be aware that justice will either be done to you, or it will be done by you. What I mean by that statement is you will either be brought to justice in the same way that the killers of Madeline Murray O'Hare were ultimately brought to justice. You will stand before a righteous and holy God in heaven who is so holy and so just that he will not let any crime go unpunished. He will not let any misdeed go unnoticed. He will not allow any tragedy to be unpunished addressed. He will correct everything, which means even though you're sitting here today and you're saying to yourself, I'm not as bad as Mally Murray O'Hare. I don't wish that I'd aborted my child. I don't swear and curse and blaspheme the name of God. I haven't made myself a lifelong committed atheist to rejecting him and pushing him out of, you know, the public square. Even if that's not you, you need to understand if God was willing to do justice for her, he's going to do justice for you. You cannot escape it. He brought these guys to justice. He will bring you to justice. The only way you can be pardoned, the only way you can be forgiven, is if you trust exclusively and only in what Jesus did on the cross. If you try to add anything to it, you're still trying to cover up your crime through your own efforts. The reason I make that statement is based entirely on this verse. Matthew chapter 27, verse 34 they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. He doesn't take that drink. Later on the passage, they offered him wine, and he takes that drink. Now what you need to know about gall or myrrh, as Mark Mark refers to it in his gospel, it's essentially a mild anesthetic. It's a form of painkiller. It's a very weak form of painkiller. You mix it with the wine, it increases its potency a little bit. It's the best that they had back here in this day and age We have stuff far more concentrated and far more effective with the 21st century medicine advances that we have access to. But it was an act of mercy. William Lane, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, points out that when an individual was brought to be crucified, the Jewish women would often mix this drink in order, on some level, to dull the pain. Now, again, this is the Gospel of Matthew. It's written for you and me. It's written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is hanging on the cross. We know he's omniscient. We know that he knows all things, which means before they ever even offer this wine to him mixed with gall or myrrh, as Mark refers to it, he already knows what it is that they're offering him. And he knows that his actions on this cross are being carefully studied and scrutinized. He knows. He has it in his mind. Someday, maybe 2,000 years from now, there's a boy named Josh Camp who's going to read this passage, and I want this to stand out to him. So he is aware of what's happening as they're offering this to him. He could just knock it aside, but he does not even though he knows exactly what they're offering to him. They give it to him. He sips it so that the gospel writers will notice that he took a sip of it. He holds it in his mouth. He discerns what it is, that it is wine mixed with a painkiller, and he spits it out. Now, there's only a little bit of pain that's going to be numbed. If it messes with his mind, his intellectual faculties, it's not going to make him totally drunk or inebriated where he's, you know, totally off his rocker or not aware of what's happening to him. It's a very, very mild painkiller. It offers only the slightest of advantages in terms of going through this ordeal of crucifixion. And yet Jesus very consciously partakes of it, and then he says, nope, I don't want it, and he spits it out. Which can only mean one thing. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, recognizing that he is bearing in his body the wrath of God, he is eagerly trying to absorb every aspect of the suffering that he possibly can denying himself every advantage or every opportunity to even in the smallest way numb the pain. Now you go to the last cup. Verse 48, one of them ran at once and took a sponge and filled it with, Matthew makes the comment, sour wine. Same comment is also made in Mark. Again, William Lane, in his excellent commentary, makes the suggestion to sour wine contrary to popular myth, which has been perpetuated throughout the church. This was not a cup of mockery. There are numerous extant records which show that sour wine was commonly drank by legionnaires serving in the Roman army. It was commonly given to individuals as a medicinal benefit. It perked you up. I'm not entirely sure what the contents of this drink were, but it is clear that this drink would revive you it was more efficient at reviving you than water. They say sour wine. Again, we're not entirely sure why they would call it sour wine, but on some level it had electrolytes or some sort of benefits to it beyond that of just regular water. And if you were beginning to succumb to what was happening to you on the cross, they would offer you this in order to revive you, that you might not die just yet. And what's interesting is numerous other accounts of crucifixions from this time period, the individuals on the cross would always take the first cup. They would always take the anesthetic. And they would always reject the second cup. In other words, they wanted to numb the pain as much as possible. And as it drew time for them to die, as they were about to expire, they would be offered the second drink in order to help them live a little longer. They'd say no to that. In other words, they would do that to bring their suffering to as quickly of an end as they possibly could. What we see here from Christ is, number one, he rejects the anesthetic. He's going to feel the pain as much as he possibly can. And when they offer him the second cup, in order to, uh, prolong his, uh, in order to prolong his life, he does, in fact, drink that cup. He's going to take all the pain that he can, and whereas most individuals would reject the second cup in order to bring their suffering to an end as quickly as possible, he embraces that second cup in order to live as long as possible. What this means is that Jesus is on the cross actively seeking to absorb as much of the punishment, as much of the wrath of God as he possibly can. That's the meaning of this cup. That's the meaning of what he's doing here. What that means for you and me, though, is that there's one of two ways that we can be made right with God. Either... We can embrace Christ and what he's doing here on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God. Or we can reject what Jesus is doing on the cross. We can seek ourselves to sort of make ourselves right with God, which is never going to work. We can run from it, we can deny it, we can say to ourselves, We don't need this. This is for other people. Religion is a crutch, it's not necessary for me but justice will be done one way or the other. When we step back and we see here a man who is totally innocent being taken to the cross to bear the wrath of God in our place. And then he takes steps to feel that as much as possible. There's no way we can minimize our own sin. We cannot say at the end of the day, what I've done is not that bad or not that serious or not that significant. If Jesus has to die, and if in his death he has to take steps to make sure he feels the full weight of God's fury, then there is no way that you and I are going to ever escape. We will be done justice to, or we will have justice done for us by Jesus Christ. There's two terms here. That are often debated by scholars. Expiation or propitiation. And that's the term that we're looking at as we consider this text this morning. To expiate, from the Latin, ex and parier, literally God needs to do something to draw something away, to draw, to draw impurity away from a person. That's what expiate means, to draw impurity off of you. And theologians who subscribe to that think that what God is doing on the cross is that he is essentially just trying to take your sin away from you, to break the power of sin, to purify you. Other theologians say, no, it's much more significant than that. It's propitiate. The Greek word, in fact, is helosmos. It's from Latin, propitious, or favorable, as we would translate it today. And what we mean by that statement is that it's not simply a matter of God trying to draw sin away from us and trying to break the power of sin, but it's actually something that needs to happen in order to secure God's favor in our life. And what we mean by that statement is that there was something in God that required him to do justice. He had to exercise his anger and his wrath against sin. And he did that by punishing Jesus Christ in our place. Now, of course, propitiation involves elements of expiation because it is through the bearing of God's wrath on the cross that Jesus also simultaneously breaks the power of sin and draws it away from us. There are three ways that this word, helosmos, is used in the New Testament. In Luke 18 through 13, it's used in the form of a verb in which the tax collector looks up to heaven and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word mercy, again, is used from the Greek word group of helosmos. Well, this word means atone. How do you show mercy to someone if you do not first address their sin under which they stand condemned? The second time that it's used is in Romans 3.25. It says that God set Jesus Christ forth as an atoning sacrifice. That's how it will be translated there. And what that means is that Jesus is the one that is offered on our behalf to address God's need for wrath and last but not least it's used as propitiate fancy theological word that i've already referenced 1 John 4:10 i'd like for you to flip there for with me go to 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 in 1 John 4:10 the apostle john makes this statement In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, that Greek word halosmos is used. There is continuity with other religions of the day. You've all heard of the stories of these island people fearing the wrath of the gods, and so they take one of their children up to the edge of the volcano, and they pitch him in in order to calm the volcano and avert the disaster. And, and, and so we see throughout world history this need to, to somehow avert God's wrath, to give them some other object to focus their anger on. And in a lot of ways, this is true of Christianity. God must exert his wrath against the unrighteousness and the wickedness of sin. But contrary to all the other world religions, God sets himself forward as the object to receive his own wrath. There is no other way to quell the wrath of God or to satisfy his need for justice other than to trust in Jesus Christ. Speaking of Madeline Murray O'Hare, one of the statements that she made numerous times throughout her life was that her greatest fear was not in dying and going to hell she didn't fear that at all she didn't accept that there was a hell what she feared most of all was that on her deathbed a bunch of christers as she called christians a bunch of christers would hear that she was dying and would gather around her and pray and that somehow it would be conveyed to the world that by some miracle, she converted to Christianity on her deathbed and she absolutely hated the prospect of that. She feared it. She left detailed instructions in her will to make sure that such a thing never happened. She's famous for making this statement. Quote, not that I think he exists or that I think he is real, but for the sake of you Christers who constantly haunt me, I offer forth this one prayer. If there is a God out there, may he never, ever allow any of you to reach me in my final moments on this earth. God will do justice. Madeline Murray O'Hare came to a fateful end as a result of the lifestyle of sin that she chose to embrace. God did justice for her and he granted her her request. There were no Christians in the room that night. There was no one to offer her any final hope. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, if you were here today, undoubtedly you've been told over and over and over again Jesus is all about love, Christianity is all about acceptance. There are elements of truth to that. God does love you. We just read it. He loves you. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to propitiate his own wrath. Which means that love has an edge to it. And so as we're gathered here this morning in church, if you're a guest with us, please understand, God is love. But love demands justice. And the only way you can satisfy God's demand for justice is by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Do not live either implicitly or directly a life like that of Madeline Murray O'Hare. Call out to him now and ask for forgiveness, which is freely available to you through what Jesus did on the cross. Let's pray. Father, if there are any here today who do not know their need, of justice. We pray, God, that you would open their eyes and help them to see that they need to trust in what your son did on the cross. We pray, God, that if there are any here today who have these ideas that Christianity is all about love and it's this sort of undefined, puffy, sort of feel good concept. Pray, God, that you'd open their eyes to see that love requires that you do justice even for someone as vile and as horrific as Madeline Murray O'Hare because you do love her. I pray, God, that they would see that you do justice to Madeline Murray O'Hare by sentencing her to a punishment commensurate with her crimes, trapped for eternity in a place of judgment. We pray, God, that if there are any here today, that they would know that they would be the recipient of justice if they do not trust in your son, Jesus. If there are any here today who are still trying to make themselves right with you, we pray, God, that you would remove those illusions far from their mind. And that you would help them to see that they need to place their faith in what your son did on the cross. God, we pray you do that this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.